please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion. And the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Remember, with the turn to chapter 4, we have entered into the vision of things which must be hereafter. The symbolic history of the future as it was given to John. We have the unveiling of spiritual realities which are normally hidden from the eyes of men. And in chapters 4 and 5, if you remember, we are setting the scene for the visionary history. We are looking into the tabernacle, as it were. It's a spiritual archetype. 
There's no veil to the Holy of Holies. The throne of God, the ark, is visible to John as he looks into that place. And, of course, we ought not to be surprised that the veil has been removed. With the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way was opened up and the veil torn from the top to the bottom. The throne of God is surrounded by an emerald, a sign of his mercy, his covenant mercies. And there were thunderings, lightnings, and voices issuing from the throne. In this book, a... um, an emblem of his terrible denunciations and the pronouncement of judgment upon his enemies. In the holy place, God is surrounded by 24 thrones and 24 priest kings. You remember from the time of David, the priests went up in 24 courses to serve uh, the Lord, and each one of those courses had a principal man. So the 24 heads are representative of the 24 courses as a whole. Here, all of the people of God represented by the 24. We have also in the holy place the menorah, the seven-branched golden candlestick, which was a symbol of the Spirit giving light to his church and through his church into the world. And as we saw last time we were together, Before the throne, you have the pavement. It's the one part of the throne room where the flooring is visible. And it is a uh, described as a glassy sea, reflecting and refracting the uh, various lights and images that uh, John sees before him. And all of this, no doubt, was a breathtaking vision. We are not yet finished in our description of the courtroom of God. Is uh, the uh, palace of the king, if you will. But here we turn our attention to another very large section and a very another another large consideration, beginning with uh, the sixth verse. Halfway through, we have the description the discussion of the four beasts or the four living creatures. And here we enter upon a very large and complicated difficulty pertaining to the identity of these four creatures. It's important that we get this right because the four living creatures will continue to make appearances throughout the book. They will continue to play a role. So, um, With one possible exception, for example, I don't think we'll see the glassy sea again. So if we were to get that wrong, we will not pay too heavy a price. But if we get the uh, four living creatures wrong, we will pay a price because they continue to appear. This morning I want to give our attention uh, and you must excuse me, this is nothing other than a prima facie case concerning the identity of the four living creatures that we will fill out in succeeding weeks as we consider the particular verses that that pertain to them. But I, I hope you understand what I mean by a prima facie case. This is a case that has some validity upon the first appearance. And today we only take the first appearance, but we'll go into more detail as we go. 
For any student of the Bible, the first relationship that the mind will draw is with the uh, chariot vision in Ezekiel, chapters 1 through 3, as well as uh, chapter 10. Ezekiel saw in his vision uh, the throne of God, which was uh, sitting upon a glassy sea or firmament that was like unto a breathtaking crystal, and beneath that four living creatures with wheels. Together they had appeared to form something like a chariot. And these four cherubims, as they're described by Ezekiel, had four faces corresponding to the faces here, although with in Ezekiel's vision, each one of the living creatures has all of these four faces. So there is some difference, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle have also been seen by Ezekiel. Ezekiel, uh, attempting to explain Revelation 4 by Ezekiel is like trying to explain one difficulty by another. Um, Ezekiel's vision of God is, in its details, almost insolubly difficult. And so you take one set of profound difficulties and you attempt to explain other difficulties by it. It's not a very good method. But Ezekiel does give us something to plant a foot upon. He calls these cherubims. And there he gives us something of their identity so we can go back to earlier portions of sacred scripture to try to get some understanding of the mysterious texts in both Ezekiel and in Revelation. So turn back with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3, which is the first place that the cherubims make an appearance. We are all well familiar with this most famous chapter of Scripture. Adam and Eve have been tempted by the serpent to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have faced God in trial and God is expelling them from the garden. And he tell, he's cutting off access to the tree of life. They have been condemned to die. And so they no longer have a right to that symbol or sacrament of life. All of that is not so much to our purpose as the guardians that God stations to keep man from trying to get, make his way back to uh, the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3 verse 24. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. It's very interesting to me that very much like the tabernacle and the temple, it appears that the Garden of Eden was to be entered from the east. And these cherubims are stationed at the east end. They are armed and they keep the way or guard the way back to the tree of life. Man is not to attempt to return there. 
I bring this up as our first text. It's not only first in the history, but we learn something very important. And we're able to uh, rule out one otherwise plausible explanation of the cherry beams that has been set forward by interpreters. Some interpreters have said that the cherubs are nothing other than symbols of God's providential government. Uh, God, as it were, is sitting upon or riding upon his providential government. And these cherubs become descriptions of the character of his providential government. It is intelligent, like a man. It's a, a thoughtful government. Rapid and direct, perhaps like a lion or an eagle. Vigilant, like a man, or steadfast and firm, like an ox. Energetic, like all of the living uh, creatures. And you could go on as far as further descriptions of them, but you get the point. That this is so much symbolic representation of God's providence, his government. But we come to Genesis 3 first, and I believe that we can rule this out. Here they are clearly not simply symbolic representations of uh, God's government, but rather they are living creatures who have been stationed to guard the way to the tree of life. And we get some confirmation of this in our text in Revelation. Interpreters... um, men far smarter than me have complained about the King James Version and its rendering of the four living creatures as four beasts. They say that this is unhappy because the language of beast in Revelation is a most unhappy one with unhappy connotations. The Greek here is zoa, where we get the language of zoo, living things living creatures. And so they say, we want to um, to emphasize this. I bring this up, not to complain about the King James Version, which is good enough, I suppose, in this regard, but to highlight the fact that they are living creatures, not mere symbols, but living things, very much the way that they were in the Garden of Eden as they were guarding the way to the Tree of Life. And we say, well, what sorts of living things are they? Well, in uh, the garden, they couldn't have been men. Not much we can say for sure. Adam and Eve did not yet have children. But rather, they appeared to be angelic beings. Uh, And we will see them again in sacred scripture under this uh, character. Before passing on from uh, from Genesis chapter 3, I want to show you something. Well, maybe a couple of somethings concerning the etymology of the word cherubims. Where does this word come from and what's its significance? I've provided in your outline the Hebrew text. Akiruvim is here with the definite article or just kiruvim without the article where we get cherubims. Some have thought that this... uh, appears to be uh, related to the Arabic. If you notice that first character, it's the ka sound. In Arabic, means something like, just like, 
or similar to. And then Ravi in Arabic means something like boys. Uh, have you ever wondered, um, in these inappropriate uh, representations of God and the angels surrounding him, you've noticed that in popular art he's frequently surrounded by chubby little boys, angels that look like chubby little boys. This is where it comes from. Some, have, some interpreters have traced this Hebrew word back to uh, an Arabic derivation that they are like boys. That was their appearance. I think this to be highly doubtful. Possible, but doubtful. I think we have in the Hebrew a much more likely etymological derivation. And etymology just means where does the word come from? Where, where did it come from? What's its background? So I've included here um, Psalm 1810. It says here that God rode upon a cherub. And you notice the, the singular word there. Kerub, and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. Notice here he's portrayed as flying upon a chariot, a cherub, and upon the wings of the wind. You get a very similar description of God in Psalm 104, verse 3. And I put the Hebrew there as well. Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind. I want you to look, and even without knowing Hebrew, notice the relationship between the words. Simply put, the first two letters have simply been reversed. It's called a transposition of letters. Rakuvo in, uh, in the Hebrew. But do, you, but do you see it? The initial letter and the second letter have simply been switched. And so some have thought that cherub means little other than chariot. And that it's been related to this word chariot. We have in other places also um, the angels of God being likened unto his chariot. Uh, so, um, in Psalm 68, verse 17, it says, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. Very significant. So, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. So, here's another picture of God riding upon his chariots, who are angels or living things. And then drawing all of this together, in Ezekiel, you will remember that these cherubs are portrayed, each one is having wheels. And the wheels are portrayed as interlocking. It's a, it's a very strange and uh, difficult description, but they appear to be portrayed as a chariot, something like a living chariot that God rides upon. So in some, I do think that we're on very good ground of tracing the etymology to chariot by a transposition of letters, but it is a living chariot composed of living beings, angelic beings. Well, of course, we will see the cherubims again before uh, the vision of Ezekiel. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25.
Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 17. We are in the midst of God's directions to Moses on how to construct the tabernacle and its sacred furniture. And here we find ourselves in the description of the Ark of the Covenant in particular. Verse 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on, on the one end, and the other cherub on the other. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. Uh, just to draw some things it's hard to say exactly what this looked like, but um, apparently these angelic beings are facing one another, and in some way they have their wings stretched out to cover the mercy seat. So you have the ark, the mercy seat is basically its lid, and rising out of the very same material, you have these cherubs facing one another and covering the mercy seat with their wings. Verse 21, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Notice here that God says that he will meet with them from above the mercy seat. And if we think of the ark as being his throne or even his footstool, it's, it's fitting to think of him as being above it. And he's between, he's portrayed as being between the two cherubims who are looking at one another. Interestingly enough, it's very similar. Uh, the positioning is just a little different when the living cherubs are portrayed as being below God in Ezekiel. We'll come to this in Revelation chapter 4 and we'll talk more about this when we get there, but notice that the description is that they are uh, on the throne and around the throne. What? On, on the throne and surrounding the throne. Uh, but here you've got a similar sort of thing. Um, and one way they're on the throne, on the mercy seat, but also surrounding the place of God sitting where he's portrayed as being between. Very interesting. Notice here that the cherubims are first portrayed in Scripture as guarding the way to the tree of life. And now they, they are portrayed as looking down, as it were, upon the mercy seat. Um, E.B. Eliot goes to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, and says that... Um, you remember it said that the angels concerning the gospel and its mercy desire to peer into these things. 
very interesting, and he draws a relationship here where they are portrayed as looking, as it were, upon the mercy seat, peering down upon it. Be that as it may, we had the cherubims uh, surrounding um, the divine throne, as it were. Remember also that into that most precious veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, cherubims were woven into the very fabric of it as if guarding the way to the presence of God. Very similar in the temple. The ark is the same, but you remember that those two very large figures, uh, the two cherubims with the outstretched wings, were between the holy place and the holy of holies, and that the angels were carved into the woodwork of the, um, of the uh, temple itself. So very much the same, both guarding the way to the presence of God, as well as longing to look into his mercy. And we, we are told, remember that um, Moses was told to make the tabernacle after the spiritual realities that he had had some sort of visionary experience of on the mount. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find very much the same thing. The temple or tabernacle and its furniture now come to life in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. The spiritual realities or archetype, even though still somewhat symbolical and hard to understand as we might expect that heavenly realities would be. At this point, perhaps we're ready to Take a glancing blow at Ezekiel chapter 1. So turn there with me if you would. As you're turning there, I'll set forward just one other thing for you to think about. I once thought that this to be the case, and now I'm not so sure. I'll just set it before you to, to think about. Some have thought that perhaps the warrior cherubs um, uh, had their faces um, from the banners of the four armies of the Lord that surrounded the tabernacle in the wilderness wandering, uh, where the armies of the Lord, the twelve tribes divided up into uh, four armies, uh, surrounded the tabernacle and guarded the way to the presence of God. On the east, you had three tribes gathered under Judah, the face of the lion. In the west, you had three uh, tribes gathered under Ephraim in the face of the laboring ox, Genesis 49, where Ephraim is likened unto a laboring ox. Uh, Dan, three tribes gathered under Dan. in the north, if, if memory serves. And Dan, is, um, his very name means judgment or justice, and thus the relationship with the flying eagle, the soaring eagle. And then finally, Reuben, the firstborn, the man-child, and three tribes gathered under him in the south. And so many interpreters have thought that the, the angelic faces were, were gathered from their various banners. And the Jews have a relatively late tradition that these indeed were the banners, the four banners. But uh, there's, there's much relationship between the faces 
the tribes in Genesis 49 and the prophecy of Jacob, his dying prophecy concerning the character of his boys. I'll leave that to your consideration. Very interesting. Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof is the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And every one had four faces, and every one had four wings. And their feet were straight feet. And the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings, on their four sides. And they four had, the face, had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side. And they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. And their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another. And two covered their bodies. And they went every one straight forward. Whither the spirit was to go, they went. And they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. And like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. As I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with his four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of a barrel. And they four had one likeness, and their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rings were full of eyes round about them four. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go. And the wheels were lifted up over against them. The spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up over against them. For the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. This is, this is very difficult. But there is something that I believe we can glean off of the surface of it. I want you to notice that these living creatures, uh, 
It says that they don't turn. They go straight. And God issues a command, and they go fast as quick as lightning, and then return. And he issues another command, and it goes out as quick as lightning, and then it returns. They go straight to their business and straight back. And so we get the first bit of their function, that they are obedient ministers of God's providence. And we get a very full representation of this in the book of Daniel, that uh, angelic beings described sometimes in the New Testament as principalities, thrones, dominions, and powers, that they were very much involved in God's providential administration, both with respect to his children, as well as the rise and fall of governments. They were So one of these angelic powers, for example, in the book of Daniel, will be described as the prince of Persia. And this appears to be both uh, both good and evil angels. Sometimes these appear to be the good. They are willingly obedient. God issues commands. They go quick as a flash. And then they return. And they turn neither to the right hand nor to the left as they do this. Verse 22. And the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creature was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. Here we get the second bit of their function. They appear to be upholders of the divine throne, uh, upholders of the divine government, as it were. Not that God uh, could not and does not do this by his own power. I don't mean that they uphold it in that way, but they are supporters of it in the sense that they concur and they obey. They willingly, as it were, bear the throne of God around and carry him around and do his, do his will. So the first and the second functions are very much related to each other. And so the text goes on, um, verse 23. And under the firmament were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Every one had two, which covered on this side, and every one had two, which covered on that side their bodies. And when they went, they heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of an host. When they stood, they let down their wings. And there was a voice from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood, and it let down their wings. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and had brightness round about, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. I wanted to continue that reading because, um, and I won't enlarge upon this, but you should note the many points of correspondence between this text and Revelation chapters 1 when um, John first sees a vision of Jesus Christ in chapters 4 and 5 in the throne room of God. 
I think from all of this we can draw some conclusions and be on very good ground. The cherubims are angelic beings. They are upholders of God's providential dominion. It's willing servants. They are agents of God's providence, (laughs) carrying out his commands. And they are ministers that are very near to his throne. If you will, they are his confidants. They hear his commands immediately. It's as if they've been admitted into his council chamber. Not to advise him, but to hear him, to receive his commands, and then to go. And they are also supporters of his throne. They uphold it as far as it pertains to them to uphold it. And again, not by any power intrinsic to to them. God's throne does not need the support of any creature in that regard, but as willing servants of this government and those who would extol, exalt, and hold it up high. This brings us to Revelation chapter chapters 4 and 5. And so we might start and say, well, obviously then the cherubims here are angelic beings. The work has already been complicated, and I say, wait, not so fast. It's even more complicated than that. Uh, Turn forward to Revelation chapter 5. Beginning at verse 8, we find that these four living creatures do not appear to be angels, but rather men, redeemed by God and praising God for his redemption, something that does not pertain to the angels. Verse 8. And when he had taken the book, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, had taken the scroll of history out of the right hand of the Father, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by, the, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests. We shall reign upon the earth. I want you to, to notice here, to note that um, they are portrayed as worshipping with the, with the four and twenty elders. With the, uh, with the temple and its furniture, uh, which speaks much more, uh, in other words, they had uh, harps, like Levites and priests, and vials full of incense, like priests, which are the prayer of the saints, and they participate in the psalmody of the temple. And then they praise God and say, Thou hast redeemed us which is something that would not pertain to angels. Secondly, in Revelation chapter 4, before I pass on, maybe I should just say, E.B. Eliot said, some interp- he quoted one interpreter, I don't remember who it was, and he said, some see these cherubims as being men in this vision because they say that they've been redeemed by the Lord, but I still think that they're angels. And E.B. Eliot cites this and says, but I think that this consideration is enough that they sing the song of the praise of the redeemed ones. And that's enough to show them to be no angels but men. But there's a second consideration here. 
that they appear not just to be men, but in some ways to perform ministerial functions, teaching and proclaiming functions. Revelation chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. You notice the function here of these uh, four living creatures. They give glory to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which is and which was and which is to come. And the response of all of the people of God represented here by the 24 elders, is they also join them then in worship. As if they, in a ministerial way, call the people to worship, and then they respond by worshiping God as they've been called to do. So in this sense, they proclaim the glory of God, and the congregation echoes it back. But we'll also find that very much like the special confidants of God, they will, throughout this book, uh, have special insight into God's providence. They will bring God's word to bear upon providence. And they'll even explain these things to John from time to time. <coughs> Another way of uh, looking at this, they, um, uh, like the elders of Israel in ancient times, they'll understand the providence. They'll know how God's commands and how his word applies to it. And they will know what to do. They will obey God's commandments themselves, and they will exhort the rest of the people of God to do likewise. And one final thing, some see this shift as being forced. Throughout all the rest of the word of God, the cherubims appear to be angels. Uh, and here they are, it's claimed that they are men. Is this forced or an unnatural association in Revelation as it has already come to us? I don't think so. The reason being, how is it in uh, Revelation chapters 1 through 3, the ministers were addressed? They were addressed as the angels of the churches. There with their, um, the angelic uh, function of proclamation primarily in view. The messengers to the churches as messengers serve God, or as angels serve messengers uh, serve God as messengers in ancient times. But also, remember, we've said that these angelic beings are portrayed in Scripture as being principalities and powers. And how have the people of God been portrayed already in the book, but rather as kings and priests who have the promise of ruling and reigning with God? And so here it is in the temple vision. All of the people of God are... Uh, priests and kings, but here his ministers are portrayed as being uh, particularly close to his throne. At this point, I will, I will leave off 
I'll simply say that this is something of a prima facie case. And as we go now successively through these verses, we have an opportunity to do three things. To test our understanding. Are these indeed um, something of a symbolic and spiritual picture of God's ministers in his church, serving God the King and serving God's people? We will have an opportunity to derive doctrine concerning the ministry as well as practice. What sorts of things would we expect the ministry to do and how is it appropriate for us to respond? Let us pray together.